0: All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to i to get there. will be on the screen, too. i going to go and read our passage and then pray for our time together in the Word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out to the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Lord, we're so thankful for your word, thankful for its challenge to our hearts to um, stay fixed on you, Lord Jesus. We admit that um, we so easily get distracted by so many things going on and you're standing right in our midst. And so God, I pray you'd just turn our hearts toward you, that you would convict and challenge us to follow after you in, in whatever circumstance we're facing this week. When we may we come before your throne as boldly as we have done so in worship this morning. May we come before you humble but confident because of what you've done for us on the cross. Bless our time in your word this morning. God, may you be exalted and lifted high. Just ask your spirit would guide my words. They wouldn't be mine but yours. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, I know you guys have missed this element of the literary nature of the Gospel of Mark, but we finally have another sandwich. Right? Sandwich time. It's time to eat a sandwich. It's a fig sandwich. It's a fig sa- Did you know people made fig sandwiches? Yeah, it does kind of, it's kind of I mean, I don't Right. It's like a fig. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a Yeah. You're right. Yeah, it's like a toasted fig Newton. Yeah. All right, thank you for making that so normal. <laughs> um, yeah, so so we have a we have a fig sandwich today. It's actually kind of the reverse of the picture, really, because the fig is kind of on the outside of this. But you know, just give me yeah, I couldn't find fig as bread. Okay, so anyway. Um, So so we've got one of these passages again where, again, these sandwiches that Mark is using, he starts a narrative, okay, and then he interrupts the narrative with the related but different narrative right in the middle of his previously started narrative, and then comes back to the narrative he started and completes it, okay? So on two ends of the clearing of the temple that we read about here in the passage, on both ends of that, we have the story surrounding it of the disciples actually hearing uh, Jesus as he interacts with the fig tree outside of uh, Jerusalem. So we've got this story of them encountering the fig tree on the way into Jerusalem and on the way out of Jerusalem, and we have in the middle the clearing of the temple um, there in the court of Gentiles. So we're going to walk through this passage and then uh, got a few things to take away from it here at the end. So uh, verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Okay, so like just before this, they had left Jerusalem. You remember he had come in in a triumphal procession, and they'd gone out to Bethany. And in Bethany, that's where he's kind of camping out during his time uh, there in Jerusalem, not staying in the city, but just outside the city, uh, probably on the other crest of, uh, of the Mount of Olives. And so the next day, in Mark's account, it says, They came from Bethany, and he was hungry. Jesus was hungry, and on the way, he's looking for food as he comes into Jerusalem. And in verse 13, we come to a a verse that's very easily misunderstood because of the way it's written, but it says this, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not fig season. It was not the season of figs. Now, I I presume that uh, Wednesday, as we did on Thursday, talked through this passage, going, Why is Jesus cursing a fig tree for not having figs when it's not fig season? Seems kind of rough on the fig tree, right? Like, (laughs) Jesus is not even fig season and you're cursing me. Like, if you're just personifying yourself as a fig tree, that would be, you know. Um, So, it is a struggle, but actually, it does make some sense here if you know a little bit about about fig trees, okay? So, there's a season for figs when the figs are actually harvested. That would be the summer and, like... Into, into the end of the summer, like the, the full summer, you can kind of be taking figs off the fig tree. During the winter, it goes dormant, and it loses the leaves that it has on the tree, and the tree leaves start falling off. And then over the course of the winter, what's, what, are, what are called these fig knobs start to build up and slowly grow, okay, it's like a very, just imagine a very slowly growing fig that is kind of uh, forcing itself onto the branches of the fig during the winter, so it's cooler outside, right? Um, and then by spring, those knobs, those fig knobs, um, they're called pagem, as opposed to tenea or something like that. There's two different words for the figs. Okay, um, those mature slowly, mature, and as the, as they do, um, these leaves start to show. And so when you see the leaves on a fig tree, if you're local, you know that that's a sign that this fig tree should have pagem on the tree. There should be these little fig knobs available to take and eat. They weren't weren't, uh, figs that you would harvest and then sell to market, but they were figs that you would be able to take as you're passing by and and grab them. So, you know, growing up, as I'm reading this passage, I'm going, I don't understand, move on, you know, like I'm sure there's something here because it's written and I just don't understand it. But that actually makes a lot of sense. He's saying it's not the season for the figs to be harvested. It's the season before that, while it's in leaf, that you should be able to just walk up to any fig tree and just grab up again. A a, a green fig, as they are called in other places in Scripture. Um, And so he sees that this fig should be filled with these fig knops, but he finds that there's nothing on it. And so even though it wasn't the time for figs, it was the time that that it had leaves and should have been filled with these knops, but this fig tree did not. Thus, for for the appearance of having fruit, that is the leaves that are upon it, there actually was no fruit present on this tree. And that's why Jesus turns to the tree and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And probably the only time this is recorded, and his disciples heard it. We've heard this attention given over and over again to the disciples and who is hearing and who is not hearing. And here we actually find the disciples heard that why is he cursing the fig tree and stuck it in their pocket right so this encounter goes in the disciples see jesus walk up to the fig tree not get any figs curse the thing and they're going huh that was interesting what is about to happen so when they arrive in jerusalem verse 15 um, we get to the middle of this sandwich okay um, verse 15 uh, on through uh, verse 20, I believe it is. Um, when, they came, uh, when they came to Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of all those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So when they came to the temple, Jesus goes inside Starts driving out people that are buying and selling in the temple and turning over the tables of the money changers. Uh, Jason, I think there's a the Herod's temple picture. If you want to bring that up again, cool. Um, again, this passage was, has always had a different color to me. Like growing up, right? Like when I uh, have always thought of this picture, I've always thought of this event as an event that like disrupted the entire temple. Like everything stopped. No one was able to do anything. And it maybe isn't that way, okay? Um, So, you know, just to remind us from last week, right? There are a few reasons why I think that, you know, the whole thing didn't halt, but something significant did happen. Um, One thing is this. This temple court is huge, okay? This is like 15 football fields of space, okay, is what's going on. I think it said 20 last week, but I think it's actually 15. I think I missed a book on that. But about 500 yards by 300 yards width, okay? So this place is huge okay um and so jesus goes in there he's yeah he's turning over some uh, the tables of, of money changers and he's stopping people from carrying things to the temple and he sets up in some corner there and and is teaching a number of things which we'll get to sort of his teaching here in a minute um so but this place is huge it's not like he was able to just go through the whole thing go like walk around the whole thing and like disrupt the whole thing there's some reasons why that 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 might not have happened one is the size Right, it's a lot of space to go through and just turn over all the tables, and we're going like that might be redundant for him to go turn over all the tables in this temple. It's huge and filled with all these people changing money and, and uh, selling uh, food for sacrifices and all this. Uh, so that's a, the first thing. It's it's just huge. The second thing is Mark doesn't record any response from the Romans to this action. Okay, the Romans literally had. And if you see, a, you see that big fortress up at the top right. That's literally the Roman fortress to look down upon the temple court and go, if there's any disruptions here or rioting or brokenness that we need to address, we're going to jump down there and keep people apart because their whole role was to keep peace in the kingdom of Rome, okay? And so they they literally have a fortress outside the temple mount, knowing that this is a place with a lot of conflict and a lot of uh, things going on. They do not respond to Jesus turning over the tables and beginning to teach. If he had gone through and disrupted the whole thing, most likely he would have evoked a response from the Romans and they would have come down and we would have heard a little bit more about what was going on there. Um, the, the next reason why we think this might be a smaller event rather than what I always have pictured in my head that he just like blasted through the whole thing and like pushed everybody aside and all this kind of thing um, is that there's no mention of this, of this disruption in the temple in his in his trial later on, like his hearing at, you know, when they're before Pilate and before Herod, no one brings this up as some issue that he caused such a disruption in the temple that he has to be prosecuted for that in some way. Um, So I say that to say this doesn't, this is not somehow taking away from the significance of what Jesus did here. It just paints a little bit different picture of what's going on. Jesus does go in there and flips over money tables, uh, Tables of money changers and and drives out people who are selling pigeons and stops people from caring he's like making a space in there so he can set up and teach he's just been in there in in mark's account the night before looking at the temple going what are they doing in here what is this what have they made this temple So this commotion gets caused by him turning over the tables and and casting or driving out the uh, the sellers of pigeons and and uh, and stopping people from moving about. He, he makes this space, and it says in verse seventeen, and he was teaching them and saying to them, "Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations'? But you have made it a den of robbers." So. We get a record of what he said to them in the moment. He also was teaching them right before that, probably, you know, time is fulfilled, kingdom's got to hear, you know, repent and believe, this kind of thing. Uh, but here we get some specific content that he was teaching to them also, in addition to those things that we've heard Mark say over and over. He says, my house shall be called a, a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. He said, this court, you guys, you guys actually set apart this humongous space for the Gentiles to come and look upon the worship of God and respond to the one true God in worship. You made this space around the temple for them to see what it is to worship the one true God. And you've made this into, instead of a place where the worship of a holy God could be observed, you've made it into this den of robbers. The reference that he shares in verse 17 is from Isaiah. Isaiah. Uh, 56, 6 through 8, and says this <clears throat> And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. Isaiah says, you've set apart this space for the Gentiles to come and observe Eventually, what's going to happen is I'm going to invite all of them into my presence. Foreigners will join themselves to the Lord, and these foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings, their sacrifices... They're not just looking on the presence of the Lord from afar in this picture. They are in full participation of the worship of God in Isaiah's prophecy. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet even others to him besides those who are already gathered. Jesus is upset um, with what he's seeing because, you know, we've seen this focus throughout the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Over and over and over again, we see Gentiles responding to the kingdom of God, accepting the message and hearing the message that Jesus is proclaiming and and teaching. They're the ones responding in faith rather than the religious of, of Israel. And here, when Jesus gets to the very center of Israel, the Jerusalem, Mount Zion, what does he see? Not only are Gentiles uh, not allowed to worship, they're being shoved out by all the preparation for Israel to worship inside the temple. Jesus is saying, this is supposed to be a space for those who have been responding to my message to come forward and participate. And you've made it a den of robbers, a place to exchange and make money off of the worship of God. Not only are you providing, yes, a service that they did need, they needed actual, the actual provision of a service to sell goods there for sacrifice. That was a need. But what had become was a racket, where people were making more and more money off of the selling of these sacrifices. And so as he's teaching... Verse 18, it says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The crowd looking on at what Jesus was saying to them, how he was challenging where they were at, is looking on astonished. And the religious are there looking at what is happening And they're afraid of Jesus. And their whole seeking to do at this point on is to destroy him. And when evening came, it said, verse 19, they went out of the city. Okay, so the next morning, verse 20, we get back to the fig tree, okay? So he clears the temple Uh, The chief priests are now trying to destroy him for the message that he has been sharing. And in the morning when they passed by, they saw again the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter, not only did he hear when Jesus said something, check, also remembered that Jesus had said it. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Your trespasses. The Lord has something to say to His disciples and to the religious in this passage, this this fig sandwich that we're looking at as we as we see this fig tree, um, which is often a representation of Israel. As many things do personify Israel in Scripture, a fig tree is also one of them. Uh, the cursing of this fig tree on either side of the, the cleansing of the temple. Mark is trying to tell us that Jesus had something to say to the religious who are excluding these Gentiles, the outcast of Israel. He has something to say to his disciples, too, that they would believe in God. That they, literally, his simple statement after they ask him about this fig tree is, have faith in God. Disciples, have faith in God. So as we close, I want to challenge us with a couple of things. First is this. I'll start where Jesus did from this passage. Have faith in God. Jesus says that to him. He says, have have faith in God. And then he says... Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. There's some debate about which mountain Jesus might be referring to as he says this. Like that that it's not obscure that he uses the picture of a mountain in his description of prayer here. There's a couple of mountains that are in his proximity. The first is the Mount of Olives. Again, Mark doesn't bring up specific name places uh, that often without reason. And, And at this point, they've just traversed again out of Jerusalem onto the Mount of Olives. And again, they're coming back over the Mount of Olives and back into Jerusalem. So, you know, it could be that he's saying, whoever says to this mountain, the Mount of Olives, you know, it could be moved, right? I mean, there's a possibility that there's a general discussion about mountains. I just am going to argue that I think there are two possible mountains that he could be specifically calling out here. One is the Mount of Olives. The second is Mount Zion itself. In the center of this picture of the fig tree moment is the cleansing of the temple, the center of Jerusalem. Mount Zion was an actual small hill around Jerusalem, okay, but Jerusalem itself through Scripture, and especially in Isaiah, is referred to as Mount Zion. The whole city is considered to be Mount Zion. And so I think the Lord would say to us, there's maybe both are in reference. Mount, Ol- Mount of Olives as well as the Mount Mount Zion. Mount of Olives stood to the east of Jerusalem and it was uh, considered kind of a uh, natural defense mechanism against attack from the east. And Beyond the Mount of Olives was the wilderness and, and then on to Jericho and out uh, across the Jordan into, uh, you know, where Israel had crossed over to come into the land itself. Um, and Mount of Olives had been considered this place where uh, it's a separation from, of Jerusalem from the outside forces that are, that are around it. And Uh, Zechariah 14.4 speaks of the Mount of Olives um, in his prophecy about the coming time and which exact time we're talking about. Lots of debate around that. But it says this, Zechariah 14.4, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other southward. So there's some reference for the Messiah literally moving the mountains to create a valley to the east of Jerusalem. I want to challenge you to have faith in God that he wants to move some mountains that are outside of you. Okay, the Mount of Olives served as this protecting feature from attack beyond. I want to challenge you that external to you, there are some mountains in your life, some pressures from the outside that are coming against you. I don't think anybody's unfamiliar with external pressure in their life. Anybody unfamiliar with that? Raise your hand if you don't know about that. Okay. In Scripture, we see a couple of ways that external pressure comes at us. The first is through temptation. And the second is through persecution, attack from an enemy. Jesus challenges us that he's provided a way out from all temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13 says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, and God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. External to you at all times, we're walking in a very interesting world all the time, and there's constantly some sort of temptation that you are faced with every single day. And the Lord would challenge you to have faith in God when you are tempted. He has provided a way out every single time. Second, persecution. Jesus has overcome the persecution of the world. There are people that are out there that aren't just tempting you, okay? They're looking on you as a follower of Jesus and specifically persecuting you because you follow Jesus, saying that's silly, that's unscientific, that's not the way we think anymore, that's an old wives, tale. whatever it is that they think of you because you're a follower of Jesus, they persecute you because of that. It's very important for Mark's hearers to hear that because they're literally being persecuted by Nero as they receive this gospel from Mark. In John 16, 32 to 33, it says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus told us that following him would cause division. Luke, as it speaks of Jesus coming into uh, at the very beginning of his birth, actually, it's prophesied over him by one of the two, the lady of the man, can't remember which one, anybody know? Um, that, that this one will cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. Okay, The words and the teaching of Jesus divide us into camps of those who trust and have faith in him and those who trust in religious structure. says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The second mountain that I think could be moved is Mount Zion. And for this, we look inside ourselves. Jesus, in this um, cleansing in the temple, goes to the heart of Israel the heart of the, rela- the worship of the Jews. And he's saddened by the whole thing. Because what is supposed to be a place of prayer and union with the Father in heaven has become a place that is just about making money. Later on in Mark, in chapter 13, we'll walk through this passage, but it says in chapter 13, 1 to 2, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Looking at the temple that Herod built, right? And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one, not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is not a mountain to trust in. The heart of this temple was that the nations would look on the worship of the people of Israel and give praise to the one true God. So the same is true for us today. John 17, 23 says to us that this is who we're supposed to be. I and them, that is Jesus in the followers, in his followers, and you and me, that is the Father with Jesus that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. We saw this in the temple structure itself. The, The court of the Gentiles is there, that the world may know the worship of the one true God. And now that temple residence is inside of you by the power of Christ Jesus. And so what is the purpose of the presence of Christ being carried by you, but that the world may know That the Lord loves them. So he challenges us with this internal struggle to have unity among the brethren. There are some mountains in our lives, guys, and everyone's got a different mountain that they've signed up to climb, okay, whatever. Jesus challenge to us, whether that's something inside of you or something outside of you that's making you stressed and giving you anxiety and, and, and challenging your heart to trust in the Lord. Jesus' word to you is very simple: Have faith in God. Did He not bring you here? Is He not faithful? He is. As the disciples wonder about this withered fig tree, this fig tree that's lost its purpose, lost its fruit, Jesus says to them, if you're going to bear fruit as this fig tree should, have faith in God. When temptation comes, do not believe the lie that you need to give in for your own comfort or to get through or whatever it is. Rather, have faith in God that he is sufficient for you. It's very easy for me to proclaim that to you from this pulpit. Those are very easy words to hear on a page and to read in Scripture. Oh, yeah, no temptation sees me except that which which I uh, am able to uh, endure. He's only going to provide temptations that I can get through. It's very easy to read those words and to say those words, but each of you know that every single day you're faced with having to really believe those words, and it is hard. It's a mountain in your life. You're looking at that going, I can't get past this hill. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus has conquered every external pressure you are going to face. So do not stand for the lies of the enemy who would say you are too weak to face these things. Because, well, that part's true, actually. You are. Stand in the truth that it is not based on your faithfulness. Right, Marcus? I have not been faithful all my life. But God, you have been faithful, so have faith in him. And the mountain will be thrown into the sea. Second this to the internal pressure. The, the second thing I want to move on to is this. Jesus moves on to verse 25 and says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is challenging these disciples to look inside and to look outside and go, God, you have conquered all. You've conquered the external pressure around me. You've conquered the internal pressure that is inside of me. I'm totally undone by you, Lord, and you have the victory. And how? How do you have that? How do you stand in the victory that Christ has given you? That's how we started this service, right? Remembering that your sin has been forgiven by God. As we reflect on on this piece, I I just want to say this uh, to us because I get this mixed up in my head, and I think we tend to, even though it actually doesn't make sense to go this way, But forgiveness happens before repentance. Forgiveness happens before repentance. I'll tell a story. Um, So years ago, um, part of my home church back in Oklahoma and we were in a pastoral transition, and I was a college kid, and as a result, I got picked to be the collegiate representative on the search committee to find a new pastor, okay? So, it's a college kid, high school kid, an elder, you know, whatever, someone that was like some old guy, like 40-year-old or whatever, like me, you know, whatever, and so, and, uh, and so we got selected to be a part of this committee, right? And so we're on this committee and go through the whole thing in like weeks and weeks, looking at resumes and who should we blah, 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 blah. should we have someone come? Da, da, da. Okay, part of that whole process, very intimately seeing this transition to this new guy coming forward. And call the guy and you know we're all unanimous about this guy he's still there today, Jim Johnson. We call him and he becomes the pastor. Okay, so fast forward like I don't know six months or a year. I can't remember the timing exactly now, but uh, I wanted to grab coffee with him lunch or whatever, you know, I, I'd like gone up to him after service, like, hey, Jim, I'd lo- you know, love to get together with you, you know. Like I made it known, you know, I, I want to get together with you, right? And I really don't know what he said to me, you know. Like, I don't know what, how it went down exactly, but he blew me off. Like, it just didn't, didn't, it didn't happen, okay? We didn't get to have lunch, we didn't get to go coffee, and I felt like, I should say, it didn't, I should say, I felt like he blew me off. The feeling I had. And then, like, for weeks, it kind of festered in me. Like, I was upset with it. I'm like, dude, like, I was part of the committee that, like, called you to come here. And, like, if I want to get lunch with you, I should be able to, like, get lunch with you. Good job. This church is, like, 1,200 people. It's not, like, some, anyway, It's not like this, you know, it's like huge church. And I'm like going, I'm important in here and I I got you here and you should be able to come get lunch with me. So it festered in my heart and I judged him. I judged him hard in my heart for a long time. And, And while I'm judging him, he has no idea he'd done me any harm. Right, he's literally just trying to probably keep his life afloat, you know, managing the crazy maniacs running through his church, and you know all this stuff, and trying to get get figured out with this thing. And like, you know, I'm going, you know, college kid, I'm important. I, I brought you here, you know. And during that time, the Lord spoke to me and was like, like, are you? Even if he knew, would you forgive him? I was like, huh, yeah. And so eventually, I, you know, I did. forgive forgave him. I was like, he probably has no idea. He probably doesn't even remember that. And honestly, I've got a great relationship with him now. You know, I go back and see him every time that I go back to Oklahoma. I go have lunch with him or coffee or whatever. Repentance never actually even happened, right? Because he didn't even know he had offended me. But I had allowed this bitterness and judgmentalism toward him get in the way of my relationship with him. But once the Lord told me, like, chill, brother. Like, it's fine. I forgave him and was able to move on. It was like, great, we have a great relationship, like I said. But I just realized that this is actually the pattern. Almost every time. It's probably more rare that someone comes to you and repents for something they've done to you before you forgive them. I bet that's a rare thing. It's not even how Jesus did it, right? Like, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He forgave me before I was born. So when Jesus says to his disciples, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. He's challenging them to be like him, right? He said, follow me, guys. If you're going to be able to pray to your Father in heaven... You have to stand in the forgiveness that you have received in Christ Jesus. When you pray, forgive. Forgiveness happens before repentance, and we must cultivate a spirit of forgiveness in our hearts. As we wrap up, I want to close with this Psalm, Psalm 139, uh, verses 1 to 10, verse 23 to 24. It says this O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And down to verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The challenge that Jesus gives to his disciples as they watch him curse the fig tree, as they watch him clear the temple, is to have faith in God. He cares for you. He is with you every moment, every day. He knows the inner thoughts of your heart. And so open up to him and say, God, search me, know me. And if there's anything unclean in me, show me. I want to be able to stand and pray in faith that mountains will move in my life. And how am I going to do that if my heart is unpure? First, go to the Lord and ask him to purify your heart and save you from that which is outside of you. He is able and he will do it. Let us pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you are faithful. You bear fruit in every season, God. There is not a season that you're not bearing fruit. For as long as the sun rises and the moon rises, God, you are faithful. So, God, I pray that whatever we're facing, God, temptation from outside, persecution from outside, doubts from inside, bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts, God, I pray you would free us in the name of Jesus, that we would have faith in you, that you have forgiven, and you've restored us, a unity with the Father in heaven. God, we don't want to be like the chief priests in the temple making ourselves a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer. So God, I pray you'd bring us to our knees again. Help us cry out to you for all provision and protection in our lives. You're the only one able to do it, and you have done it. So Lord, help us to have faith in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.